People asked me, wasn't I lonely and frightened? Yes, at times, when the coyotes howled at night and the whooping cranes flew over before daylight, it sounded weird. I was never alone, my Lord was ever near, and I read my Bible so I was assured of his loving care and protection. Then, too, I knew my Christian parents were asking God to watch over me, and he certainly answered their prayers. Martha Stecker Norby Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochede. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. We've spent the last several weeks with one ordinary American, Eleanor Pruitt Rupert Stewart. I hope you've enjoyed our time with her, and she'll be back, but today we're zooming out to the larger story. In a February 1861 speech, President Abraham Lincoln declared that the government's purpose was to, quote, elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial burdens from all shoulders, and to give everyone an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life, end quote. President Lincoln declared that, quote, the wild lands of the country should be distributed so that every man should have the means and opportunity of benefiting his condition, end quote. In May of the following year, he signed the Homestead Act. Under this law, any 21-year-old head of household could claim a 160-acre lot. One acre, by the way, is about the size of a football field. New immigrants, formerly enslaved people, single women, like Eleanor, qualified for the land. One study estimated that by 1887, one-third of the homesteads in the Dakotas were held by women. The application fee was $18, equivalent to about $200 today, and the applicants had five years to make improvements to their land, build a dwelling, plant crops, and reside on the claim, also referred to as proving up. Then they returned to the land office to file for the deed of ownership, or patent. Out of 4 million applicants, over 1.6 million families successfully became landowners under the original Homestead Act and its revisions. 270 million acres in all, or 10% of the land in the United States, were granted before the law was repealed in 1976. Homesteaders weren't the only ones who headed west during America's westward expansion. Missionaries, miners, and young women seeking to marry also fulfilled the so-called manifest destiny. Today, I'm focusing on homesteaders, however, women specifically but not until I speak about some of the people who had lived on that land for millennia. The spaces that we now call Colorado, Montana, North Dakota, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming were inhabited by dozens of indigenous nations, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Crow, and Shoshone, just to name a few. I encourage you to check out the episode on pre-Columbian cultures and civilizations of the podcast History of North America by Mark Bennett. I'll have a link in the show notes. But as more and more migrants moved west to claimed homesteads, mine gold, or practice or spread their religion, the Native Americans who didn't die from disease, starvation, or violence 
were forced onto smaller and smaller portions of land. As of 2010, the collective geographic area of Indian reservations was 55.7 million acres, or about 2.3% of the area of the United States. Prior to the 19th century, indigenous nations held their territories by force or alliance. Tribal lands did not have hard borders, but people moved in and out of each other's court territories to hunt, trade, or fight. They moved along an extensive network of trails that would eventually lead emigrants from the eastern part of the continent. As I mentioned a moment ago, multiple nations had inhabited the space around which the federal government would ultimately draw borders. The Arapaho were among the many people who inhabited Wyoming. In 2005, Elder William Ikijan Kaher shared a history of the northern Arapaho with the Casper Star Tribune. Going back into our traditional stories, the way we used to tell of our nomadic ways, we used to range roughly from the Continental Divide, someplace into what is now the state of Montana, around where the water comes up, Old Faithful. From there, on into parts of Montana, down into Tongue River, into the Black Hills, then across into Kansas and Nebraska, up into the border towns of New Mexico and Colorado. All of this territory, on a yearly and seasonal basis, at different points in this country, it was plentiful and a necessity. The buffalo ranged in some particular areas. Berries were plentiful and ripe in certain areas. Lodgepoles were plentiful and accessible in other parts. Medicinal plants grew in different climates and elevations. The wildlife, the elk, the deer, the antelope, and the moose, in various places were found in numerous amounts at various times of the year. The birds, sage-grouse, and other kinds of birds, the people knew where they were, and they were plentiful. So, within this vast territory, they used to roam, fulfilling their needs and preparing for whatever season. Everything had a purpose. Everything had a use. They were aware of all these things. The water was clean and unpolluted. There was fish in the water. Fur-bearing animals were utilized. The beaver, muskrat, mink. This free lifestyle in this area was described to me in this fashion by one of my grandparents. It is our adobe, it is our teepee. The teepee has four main poles. One of our poles sits somewhere in the vicinity of Pikes Peak. Another one sits up there in the Yellowstone area. The door sits someplace in Kansas, and within this area, this is our lodge. This is our home. Everything is complete. Everything is there. All was provided for them by nature. It was like a super Walmart. We could take as we needed. It was always there, always fresh. That's how it was. Perfect harmony in balance with the changes and cycles of the year. Perfect unity of man with his environment. George Bent, who had a Cheyenne mother and white father, wrote some of the history of the Cheyenne people in letters to George Hyde. George Bent learned about Cheyenne history from White Frog and some of the other elders. As soon as the corn was planted in May or June, 
the tribe left the village and moved out into the plains to hunt buffalo. In the fall, they returned to the village to harvest and store their crops. But as soon as this was accomplished, they again returned to the buffalo range for the fall and winter hunt. In those days, they Cheyennes had no horses. Everyone was on foot, but the tribe had a great number of large dogs, and these animals were employed to pack or drag burdens. After the kill, the buffalo were skinned and the hides were laid on the snow, flesh side down. The meat was then cut up and laid on the hides, which were then folded up over the meat, and the whole bundle was then corded up with rawhide thongs. Thongs were then tied to the bundles, and the other ends of these long thongs were fastened to the dogs' necks. The hunters then set out for the camp, the dogs dragging the bundles of meat over the snow. Bent also writes about how his people came to be called Cheyenne, which is also the name of Wyoming's capital city. Though they've also lived in South Dakota, Nebraska, Colorado, Minnesota, and Kansas, our people call themselves Tsitsitsas, meaning people alike, or simply our people. But by the whites, we have always been named Cheyennes from a Sioux word, Cheyenne, which means people speaking with a strange tongue. The Sioux gave us this name over 200 years ago, and many other tribes and the whites have adopted the name from the Sioux. The Shoshone people lived not only in Wyoming, but throughout the Great Basin, which includes most of Nevada, the western half of Utah, and parts of Oregon, California, and Idaho. The Northwestern Shoshone were skilled hunter-gatherers who migrated with the changes of season. Each autumn, they fished in Idaho, then, then hunted buffalo, elk, deer, moose, and antelope in western Wyoming. The sun-dried meat sustained the Northwestern Shoshone throughout the winter, which they spent in what is now Preston, Idaho. The animal hides provided clothing and shelter. The land of southern Idaho and throughout Utah yielded the seeds, roots, and berries that the Northwestern Shoshone gathered in spring and summer months. They dug roots and hunted small game in the late summer. The pinion nut or pine nut harvest happened before the cold set in and was an important social event. The pinion nut is high in nutrients and an important part of the Shoshone diet. The woman who served as translator and guide for Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery was born in Idaho into the Akaidika, or Salmon Eater tribe, of the northern Shoshone. The pronunciation of her name is debated. Meriwether Lewis wrote it as Sakagarwia in his journal. In the Hidatsa language, Sakaga means bird and Wea means woman. In her early teens, she had been kidnapped by a group of Hidatso people and taken to their village in what is now Washburn, North Dakota. Other members of the Corps wrote her name differently in their journals. And many Shoshone people pronounce her name Sakajawia, maintaining that the name means boat launcher. I'm going to use the Shoshone pronunciation. When Lewis and Clark reached Sacagawea's Hidatsa village in November of 1804, she was pregnant with her first child, Jean-Baptiste. Sacagawea was given in marriage to French-Canadian trader Toussaint Charbonneau 
shortly after her capture by the Hidatsa people. Lewis and Clark knew they would encounter Shoshone tribes at the Missouri River headwaters. They would need horses to cross the Bitterroot Mountains, and the Shoshone had them. The Corps hired Charbonneau after learning that he spoke French and Hidatsa. Sacagawea spoke Hidatsa and Shoshone. Discovery Corps member Francois Labiche spoke French and English. The three of them together were able to translate between Shoshone and English. On April 7th, Sacagawea and Charbonneau, Lewis and Clark, and York, the man enslaved to Clark, and the rest of the Corps of Discovery, embarked on their expedition to the Pacific. Sacagawea was indispensable to the mission. She helped them communicate with other tribes, and her presence made the group of 30 men seem less threatening. She picked berries, collected edible plants, and dug for roots that were used for food and sometimes medicine. When they passed through the area where she'd grown up, she remembered the trails, and, Car and Clark praised her as his pilot. One of those trails was, according to Clark, quote, a large road passing through a gap in the mountain, end quote, and it led to Yellowstone River. It's now known as Bozeman Pass, and it's in Montana. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau was born on February 11th. Captain Clark gave him the nickname Pompey. Pomp means firstborn in Shoshone. They traveled the Missouri River in pirogue boats, which are similar to canoes. Unfortunately, I don't have Sacagawea's words for the dramatic event that occurred on May 14th. But her quick thinking and quick acting were crucial to the ultimate success of the expedition, as both Corps commanders write in their journals, starting with Clark, who refers to her here as the Squaw. 14th of May, Tuesday, 1805. A very clear cold morning, a white frost, and some fog on the river. The thermometer stood at 32 above zero, wind from the southwest. We proceeded on very well until about six o'clock. A squall of wind struck our sail broadside and turned the pirogue nearly over, and in this situation the pirogue remained until the sail was cut down, in which time she nearly filled with water, the articles which floated out was nearly all caught by the squaw who was in the rear. This accident had like to have cost us dearly, for in this pirogue were embarked our papers, instruments, books, medicine, a great proportion of our merchandise, and in short, almost every article indispensably necessary to further the views, or ensure the success of the enterprise in which we are now launched to the distance of 2,200 miles. It happened, unfortunately, that Captain Lewis and myself were both on shore at the time of this occurrence, a circumstance which seldom took place, and though we were on the shore opposite to the pirogue, were too far distant to be heard or do more than remain spectators of her fate. We discharged our guns with the hope of attracting the attention of the crew and ordered the sail to be taken in, but such was their consternation and confusion at the instant that they did not hear us. Lewis's Perspective Thursday, May 16th. The morning was fair and the day proved favorable to our operations. By four o'clock in the evening, 
Our instruments, medicine, merchandise, provisions, etc. were perfectly dried, repacked, and put on board the pirogue. The loss we sustained was not so great as we had at first apprehended. Our medicine sustained the greatest injury, several articles of which were entirely spoiled, and many others considerably injured. The balance of our losses consisted of some garden seeds, a small quantity of gunpowder, and a few culinary articles which fell overboard and sunk. The Indian woman to whom I ascribe equal fortitude and resolution with any person on board at the time of the accident, caught and preserved most of the light articles which were washed overboard. All matters being now arranged for our departure, we lost no time in setting out. In gratitude, Lewis and Clark named a tributary of the Muscle Shell River after Sacagawea. Three months later, they encountered a Shoshone tribe who might be able to provide those horses they needed for their mountain crossing. Sacagawea was brought in to translate. The interpreter and squaw, who were before me at some distance, danced for joyful sight, and she made signs to me that they were her nation. The meeting of those people was affecting, particular between Sacagawea and an Indian woman who had been taken prisoner at the same time with her and who had afterwards escaped from the Hidatsa and rejoined her nation. Sacagawea convinced her kinsmen to give additional guides and horses to the Corps of Discovery. As moved as she was by the reunion with her family, she continued her service to the expedition. For their service to the Corps of Discovery, Charbonneau, was given $500.33 and 320 acres of land. At the end of the expedition, as Captain Clark traveled downriver, he wrote to Charbonneau and invited him to bring his family to St. Louis. You have been a long time with me and conducted yourself in such a manner as to gain my friendship. Your woman who accompanied you that long, dangerous, and fatiguing route to the Pacific Ocean and back deserved a greater reward for her attention and services on that route than we had in our power to give her at the Mandans. As to your little son, my boy Pomp, you well know my fondness of him and my anxiety to take him and raise him as my own child. As I said, I don't have Sacagawea's own words, but I'm grateful for this glimpse into her personality in Lewis's journal. Monday, January 6th, 1806. Captain Clark set out after an early breakfast with the party in two canoes as had been concerted the last evening. Charbonneau and his Indian woman were also of the party. The Indian woman was very important to be permitted to go and was therefore indulged. She observed that she had traveled a long way with us to see the great waters and that now that monstrous fish was also to be seen. She thought it very hard she could not be permitted to see either. She had never yet been to the ocean. As I've already stated, there were many indigenous nations throughout the Western, Western territories. They had distinct languages, traditions, and cultures that each deserve a podcast of their own. As we shift into the discussion of the settlers, just know that I know that I didn't even scratch the surface. But in the next episode, I will discuss how westward expansion affected Native people. The fur trade was an important link between Lewis and Clark's expedition and westward migration. 
beaver trappers learned to expertly navigate the western terrain, often using trails that indigenous people had developed, and they eventually became guides for the settlers who followed. Between 1843 and 1860, 350,000 pioneers traveled the Oregon Trail, which started in Independence, Missouri, near the Kansas border. Published in 1845, the Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California recommended the amount of food that should be packed for each traveler. 200 pounds of flour, 150 pounds of bacon, 10 pounds each of coffee, 10, 20 pounds of sugar, and 10 pounds of salt. In 1853, traveler Catherine Washburn records her list of provisions for the trip. We got our outfit at this place, bought five barrels of flour, 500 of meat, three bushels of apples, half bushel of peaches, 40 pounds sugar, 25 of rice, three pounds of tea, six gallons of molasses, one eight-gallon keg full of pickles, and four gallons of lard. As far as kitchenware, the guide advised a kettle, fry pan, coffee pot, tin plates, cups, knives, and forks. Families should also plan to take rifles, powder, lead, and shot. And the pioneers should bring cash to purchase additional supplies along the way and to pay for ferry crossings. With wagons and oxen, the whole trip could cost between $600 and $1,000. And the further east from Missouri they began their journey, the more expensive the trip. Preparations also included sewing tents, wagon covers, clothing, and sacks for provisions. After going west into Topeka, the first leg of the trail goes northeast. It follows the Platte River to the Rocky Mountains, over the plains, to South Pass in what was then Wyoming Territory. It continued over the Continental Divide. The trail then forked into two routes. The northward route followed the Snake River to, into Idaho. The southward fork led to Sacramento. The Santa Fe Trail also started in Missouri. In New Mexico territory, it split into two roads, one leading to Los Angeles and one to San Diego. Before heading west, Missouri arrivals purchased supplies, made repairs to their wagons, and joined up with other travelers to form groups that would journey together for safety. Once they got going, they moved at a pace of about 10 to 20 miles per day. It was recommended that emigrants begin their journey in the spring while there was grass for livestock. But if they didn't reach Oregon or California before winter, they could be trapped by deadly snows. While some guides promised a three to four month trip, it usually took six to eight months to reach the end of the trail. For some travelers, the trip gave them their first encounters with Native Americans. The feelings that white women recorded about Indians ranged from curiosity or admiration to disgust or fear. Sometimes they expressed a mixture of emotions. The first tribes they would have met included the Kanza and the Potawatomi. These interactions were often friendly and even helpful. These Indians ferried the emigrants across large rivers by boat and also helped them cross smaller but difficult rivers and streams. In 1851, Sarah Cranstone wrote, quote, Three Indians, the first we had seen, met us just at night and followed us to camp. They appeared very friendly and were begging. 
They had a piece of paper, and on it was written with a pencil, These are friendly Indians. You had better treat them well. End quote. Emigrants count- encountered Pawnee Indians along the Platte River. Sarah Sutton watched in amazement as a large group of these nomadic Indians set up their wickiup homes in the middle of a rainstorm. Here come the whole 600 moving their tents. They lash their poles on each side of ponies like shafts and carry other plunder on the back end of them dragging on the ground. And we saw 20 dogs with shafts hauling a six-gallon keg and dressed buffalo skins their cover. Their teams went on ahead of us, and the men, squaws, and papoose and children of all sizes were all among us, and our children have swapped bread for a good many strings of beads. We struck in behind them, it soon began to rain, and first we knew they had built their houses in 20 minutes, and was the busiest people you ever saw turning out their horses and gathering weeds to burn. Mrs. Hadley wrote that the Sioux were, quote, kind and hospitable and are the most polite and cleanest tribe on the road. They are whiter, too, than any that we have seen. They are well-dressed and make a fine appearance. Went in one of their houses, made of dressed skins sewed together and very large. They are all busy, some of them jerking buffalo, some painting skins for boxes, which look very nice. Helen Stewart called the Indians that she saw the dirtiest creatures she ever saw. Quote, They will pick lice out their head and eat them and then the filth of their clothes. End quote. Angeline Ashley wrote of Utah Indians that they were, quote, very low Indians and very ugly looking. End quote. After watching them gather and eat locusts near the Bear River, she wrote the following about the Sioux in 1852. The Sioux are established in this part of the country. They keep a great many horses, mules, and ponies for sale and ask from $100 to $125 for horses and mules and from $65 to $75 for ponies. There are many French traders with them. They keep a great number of dogs and are very careful to keep them away from the tents. They do not beg but offer to pay for anything they desire. They make their tents of buffalo skin and long poles and carry the poles with them when they move because there is no timber for 200 miles back of the fort. Helen Carpenter described them as, quote, tall, fine-looking Indians, end quote. She wrote, quote, the women and men alike wear the hair in two long braids hanging down the back. From its sleek, glossy appearance, it shows the care that it receives, end quote. Many women wrote about trading with the Indians, as did Margaret Frank. The squaws were much pleased to see the white squaw in our party, as they call me. I had brought a supply of needles in our thread, some of which I gave them. We also had some small mirrors in gilt frames and a number of other trinkets with which we could buy fish and fresh buffalo, deer, and antelope meat. A typical day on the trail started before sunrise. First, they cooked breakfast. The fuel might be dry grass, wild sage, or buffalo chips also known as meadow muffins or bois de vache, which produced a clear, hot, virtually odorless fire. Esther Lyman explains how to build a fire. I might as well tell you here how we managed to build our fires since we left the stove. We dig a trench about six inches in depth, one foot in width, 
and between three and four feet in length. We lay small bars of iron across the trench after the fire is kindled, then it is ready for use. The worst trouble is not having anything to bake in. Joseph found a bake kettle, but it did not have any cover, but we can borrow one sometimes. Some women really made the most of trail cooking. They managed to bake bread, gingerbread, biscuits, crackers, pies, cornbread, and fruitcakes. Charlotte Pangra's April 19, 1853 journal entry includes made griddle cakes, stewed berries, and made tea for supper. After that was made, over two loaves of bread, stewed pan of apples, prepared potatoes and meat for breakfast, and mended a pair of pants for William. Pretty tired. On May 8th, baked this morning and stewed apples this afternoon. On one Sunday in June, Cecilia Adams wrote that she'd, quote, cooked beans and meat, stewed apples, and baked suckies in sufficient quantity to last some, besides making Dutch cheese, and took everything out of the wagon to air, end quote. Suckies, or maybe it's pronounced sukies, I'm not sure, were pancakes. Mrs. Sawyer writes, quote, Mr. Sawyer went off the road this morning on his pony and killed two sage hens. We ate them for dinner, and they were delicious, end quote. Mrs. Hadley, on the other hand, was not a fan. See some hens called sage hens. I have heard say they were good to eat. Some of the company killed some, and I think a skunk preferable. Their meat tastes of this abominable mountain sage, which I have got so tired of that I can't bear to smell it. They live wholly upon it, and it scents their flesh. Elizabeth Gear describes a day when there was too much rain for a fire. Quote, November 20, rain all day. It is almost an impossibility to cook, and quite so to keep warm or dry. I froze or chilled my feet so I cannot wear a shoe, so I have to go around in the cold water barefooted, end quote. Some travelers dined in their tents on crackers, dried beef, and fruit when, it was, when there was too much rain. But others persisted and held umbrellas over fires or dug holes for the fires, covering them with cook pots and then feeding the fire's air through hollow reeds. Hopefully, the camp had access to clean water. Women helped dig wells, lugged water from streams, or collected snow for melting. When the water was muddy, it could be cleared for cooking and drinking by adding alum or cornmeal. Esther Lyman explains. The waters of the Platte is saturated with moist, earthly limestone and sand and has a torpid appearance. Before using it for drinking or cooking, it should be settled by sprinkling a handful of cornmeal slowly into a pail and stirring it at the same time. It will soon become quite clear, palatable, and wholesome. The water in Soda Springs, Idaho, was very good for making biscuits, as Sarah Smith writes. Quote, the water tastes like soda water, especially artificially prepared. We find it excellent for making bread. No preparation of the water is necessary. Take it from the fountain and the bread is light as any prepared with yeast. End quote. It was also refreshing to drink, as Esther Hannah writes. There are some nine or ten of these springs in this place. The water is clear and sparkling, boiling and bubbling, swelling at times almost to the surface. 
It is strongly impregnated with soda, and by putting a little acid in it and adding sugar, it will compare with any soda as it foams and boils up in the same way. It will also raise biscuit equal to saleratus. We mixed up a drink with tartaric acid and sugar, which was excellent and foamed nicely. Saleratus is sodium bicarbonate. But Elizabeth Wood writes, quote, The water is so bad here and the milk from our cows so strongly impregnated with alkali that I have substituted coffee as a beverage, end quote. Those who brought cows with them had a regular supply of fresh milk, as well as butter, as Katura Belknap writes. We have three good milk cows. Milk them at night and strain the milk in little buckets and cover them up and set on ground under the wagon. And in the morning, I take off nice thick cream and put it in the churn. I save the stripping from each cow in the morning milking and put it in the churn also. And after riding all day, I have a nice roll of butter, as long as we have plenty of grass and water. Helen Carpenter and Eliza McCauley both write that the motion of the wagon churned the butter in their tin churns. Carpenter says, quote, By noon, if the churn works well and it seldom fails, there is a ball of butter the size of hickory nut and innumerable little ones like shot, end quote. Travelers were also able to enjoy fresh meat at times. Sarah Sutton writes, quote, The boys have killed about 18 rabbits and five sage hens this forenoon. The girls are washing and baking apple and peach pies, stewing beans and rabbits, and appear very happy, are all in good health and know no trouble. We have only eight girls to do the work. This trip is fun for them. End quote. And many travelers had their first taste of buffalo. Amelia Stewart Knight writes, quote, We got a mess and cooked some for supper, very good and tender. End quote. Just like they did back east, women cleaned on the trails. Only now they contended with trail dust and mud. In 1853, Knight writes, quote, This morning was dry, dusty, and sandy. This afternoon it rained, hailed, and the wind was very high. Have been traveling all the afternoon in mud and water up our hubs. Broke chains and stuck in the mud several times. End quote. So-called laying-over days were for work, repairs, and heavy chores like cleaning the wagon, airing out baggage, and laundering clothes. On May 8th, Charlotte Pangra mentions getting her white clothes ready to suds and also feeling very tired and lonely. May 14th, quote, gathered up the dishes and packed them dirty for the first time since I started, end quote. Four days later, there was a, quote, very large washing, unpacked, dried, and packed clothing, end quote. She also made a pair of calico cases for pillows and cooked two meals. Quote, done brave, I think, end quote. I think so too, Charlotte. Women did other traditional activities like knitting, crocheting, and exchanging recipes. But the demands of trail life obliged women to engage in activities that women, or at least white women, wouldn't have done back home. Mary Lyon's parents shared driving duties since her father liked to get exercise by walking along behind the wagon for a little while every day. When the wagon got stuck in the mud, Mrs. Lyon, while holding her baby, mounted their horse and led the oxen out of the mud. Laying over could be fun, too. There were dances, baseball games, debates, 
and one of my favorite activities, spelling bees. Men, women, and children went fishing and hunting. Many women wrote about their religious faith in their journals. On Sunday nights, wagon trains had worship services with prayers, Bible reading, and music. The services were often led by a minister, as Esther Hannah writes, quote, Mr. Yantis, a Presbyterian minister, and train are camped near us. It is pleasant to have a tabernacle in the wilderness. They had two or three large tents put up together and seats placed so as to accommodate all, end quote. Hannah was alluding to the portable dwelling for Yahweh, another name for God, as described in the book of Exodus. And she was not the only traveler who saw herself in the Bible. Sarah Herndon writes, Sunday, June 25th. We have had a preaching service this afternoon. The services were well attended, and the sermon was fine. He compared our situation with that of the children of Israel in the wilderness. He spoke of God's care for them, and that He careth for us. Spoke in an earnest manner about our dependence upon God, and our inability to take care of ourselves, or to accomplish anything without God's help and cooperation, and of the necessity of earnest prayer and faith in all circumstances of life. Not everyone agreed that the Sabbath should be a day of rest. Some traveling parties split up over this difference of opinion, and many women were horrified by the sinful behavior they observed on the trail. Maria Belshaw writes, quote, May 14th, all kinds of wickedness going on, card playing and fighting and robbing, several sick in camp. Last night, a man was murdered by a man he had hired to drive cattle, end quote. Then she goes on to describe a, grease, a gruesome murder. The killer was caught, tried, and hanged. We can see that life on the trail was taxing, sometimes fun, and also dangerous. Threats ranged from rattlesnake bites and campfire burns to exposure, starvation, and disease. During a worldwide cholera epidemic, the disease spread through feces-contaminated water on the trail. Violent diarrhea and vomiting dehydration, and kidney failure tortured its victims and killed them within a matter of days or hours. Smallpox, measles, and typhoid cut other lives short. Travelers were also crushed in buffalo stampedes, and they drowned while trying to cross swollen rivers. Small children fell and were run over by wagon wheels. Jane Tortillo writes on July 28th, We passed by the train I have just spoken of. They had just buried the babe of the woman who died days ago and were just digging a grave for another woman that was run over by the cattle and wagons when they stampeded yesterday. She lived 24 hours and she gave birth to a child a short time before she died. The child was buried with her. Lucy Henderson was a child in 1846 when her little sister, Salita Jane, got hold of a bottle of laudanum opium dissolved in alcohol. Henderson recalls, quote, when mother tried to awake her later, she couldn't arouse her. Letty had drunk the whole bottle of laudanum. It was too late to save her life, End quote. Death was such a regular occurrence on the trail that Martha Gay Masterson and her siblings eventually got used to seeing graves and skeletons on the trail side. Though lives ended tragically on the trail, life began too. Lucy's mother gave birth to a baby girl 
three days after little Selita Jane was buried. Charlotte Pangra was often called upon to nurse fellow travelers, as she writes on May 19th. This evening, word came to camp that a lady encamped some two miles back was sick and needed aid. Accordingly, Allison and I hunted up our husbands, got them to saddle two horses and started. Had a very pleasant ride, found a lady quite comfortable in bed in a wagon with a little daughter, perhaps an hour old. Gave it a name, Sarah Elizabeth Bonfield, wished her success and rode back. Reached our camp about dark, well pleased with our expedition. The trip could be dangerous for animals too. Cows were struck by lightning or died after days without water. Amelia Stewart Knight writes in August, quote, The roads have been very dusty, no water, nothing but dust and dead cattle all day. The air is filled with the odor from cattle, end quote. Days later, lost one of our oxen. We were traveling slowly along when he dropped dead in the yoke. We unyoked and turned out the odd ox and drove around the dead one. And so it is all along the road. We are continually driving around the dead cattle and shame on the man who has no pity for the poor dumb brutes that have to travel and toil month after month on this desolate road. I could hardly help shedding tears when we drove around this poor ox who had helped us along thus far and have given us his very last step. By now, the Knight family, who had left Iowa in April, had reached Idaho. On August 8th, she writes about a scary incident involving her daughter Lucy. We have to make a drive of 22 miles without water today. Have our cans filled to drink. Here we left unknowingly our Lucy behind. Not a soul had missed her until we had gone some miles when we stopped for a while to rest the cattle. Just then, another train drove up behind us with Lucy. She was terribly frightened, and so were some of us when we learned what a narrow escape she had run. She said she was sitting under the bank of the river when we started, busy watching some wagons to cross, and did not know we were ready. And I supposed she was in Mr. Carl's wagon, as he always took charge of Francis and Lucy, and I took care of Myra and Chat. When starting, he asked for Lucy, and Frances said, she's in Mother's wagon, as she often went there to have her hair combed. It was a lesson to all of us. They started up the Blue Mountains in Oregon on August 18th. Thursday, August 18th, commenced the ascent of the Blue Mountains. It is a lovely morning, and all hands seem to be delighted with the prospect of being so near the timber again, after the weary months of travel on the dry, dusty sage plains, with nothing to relieve the eye. Just now, the men are hallooing to their echo rings through the woods. Evening. Traveled ten miles today, and down steep hills, and have just camped on the banks of the Grand Ronde River, in a dense forest of pine timber, a most beautiful country. Friday, August 19th. Quite cold morning, water frozen in the buckets. Traveled thirteen miles, over very bad roads without water. After looking in vain for water, we were about to give up as it was near night, when husband came across a company of friendly Cayuse Indians about to camp, who showed him where to find water, half mile down a steep mountain, and we all camped together with plenty of pine timber around us. The men and boys have driven the cattle down to water, and I am waiting for water to get supper. 
This forenoon, we bought a few potatoes from an Indian, which will be a treat for our supper. Mount Hood came into view on September 4th. Amelia wrote her last entry on September 17th. Saturday, September 17th. In camp yet. Still raining. Noon. It has cleared off and we are all ready for a start again. For some place we don't know where. Evening. Came six miles and have encamped in a fence corner by a Mr. Lambert's, about seven miles from Milwaukee. Turn our stock out to tolerable good feed. A few days later, my eighth child was born. After this, we picked up and ferried across the Columbia River, utilizing skiff, canoes, and flatboat to get across, taking three days to complete. Here, husband traded two yoke of oxen for a half section of land with one half acre planted to potatoes and a small log cabin and lean-to with no windows. This is the journey's end. The Oregon Trail journey ended relatively well for the Knight family. On October 25, 1853, Mr. Knight purchased a claim in Clark County, Wyoming Territory. But not all Oregon Trail travelers were so fortunate. Six years earlier, multiple members of the Donner and Reed families died of starvation, sickness, and extreme cold. As their experience is covered in several podcasts, including Stuff You Missed in History Class, I won't go into them here. But some travelers actually found that the journey had done them well. Harriet Ward arrived in California the same year that the Knights reached Wyoming Territory. Early in the trip, she had written about a lame limb. But at the end of the journey, at the age of 50, Harriet writes, quote, On our return to camp, we met Willie coming with Prince, and I jumped on his back without a saddle and rode off triumphantly. You will think I'm rejuvenating, and indeed I am, for I thought the day passed when I could run, jump, and walk as I do now. End quote. But for people who did make it to Oregon or California, or whatever their western destination, the end of the trail meant the beginning of new problems. Carrie Lassell Dietrich recalls her family's arrival in Kansas. When our covered wagon drew up beside the door of the one-room sod house that father had provided. He held mother down, and I remember how her face looked as she gazed about the barren farm, then threw her arms around his neck and gave way to the only fit of weeping I ever remember seeing her indulge in. Edith Ammons and her sister, Ida Mary, were similarly disappointed in 1909 when the claim locator drove them in his wagon from the hotel to their new homestead. Edith writes in her memoir, Well, he announced, I reckon this might be it. But this couldn't be it. There was nothing but space and sun-baked plains and the sun blazing down on our heads. My sister pulled out the filing papers, looking for the description the United States Land Office had given her. Section 18, range 77W, about 30 miles from Pierre, South Dakota. Three miles from the Buffalo Waller, our driver said, mumbling to himself, ignoring the official location and looking back as though measuring the distance with his eye. Yep, right in here, somewhere. But, faltered Ida Mary, there was to be a house. There she is. 
he announced, pointing his long whip in the direction of the setting sun. See that shack over yonder? Whipping up the tired team with a flick of the rawhide, he angled off across the trackless prairie. One panic-stricken look at the black, tar-papered shack, standing alone in, the, in that barren expanse, and the last spark of our dwindling enthusiasm for homesteading was snuffed out. The house, which had seemed such an extraordinary stroke of luck when we had heard of it, looked like a large but none too substantial packing box tossed haphazardly on the prairie, which crept in at its very door. The driver stopped the team in front of the shack, threw the lines to the ground, stretched his long length frame over the wheel and began to unload the baggage. He pushed open the unbolted door with the grass grown up to the very sill and set the boxes and trunk inside. Grass, dry, yellow grass crackling under his feet. Here, why don't you get out? He said sharply. It's sundown and a long trip back to town. Automatically, we obeyed. As Ida Mary paid him the $20 fee, he stood there for a moment, sizing us up. Homesteaders were all in his day's work. They came, some stayed to prove the land, some didn't. We wouldn't. Don't appear to me like you gals are big enough to homestead. She adds, This was not the West as I had dreamed of it. Not even the West of banditry and violent action. It was a desolate, forgotten land, without vegetation save for the dry, crackling grass, without visible tokens of fertility. Drab and gray and empty. Stubborn, resisting fields. Heroics wouldn't count for much here. It would take slow, back-breaking labor and time, and the action of the seasons to make the prairie bloom. People had said this was no place for two girls. It began to seem that they were right. But eventually, the simple shelters were made into homes. Dirt floors were covered with cowhides or buffalo skins, and walls were covered with old newspapers or bright gingham. Dry goods boxes were converted into tables or dressers, crates and barrels into chairs. A traveling trunk might serve as a baby's cradle. Emma Hill remembers, In about a week, we had a cabin ready to move into. It had a dirt floor and dirt roof, but I tacked muslin overhead and put down lots of hay and spread a rag carpet on the floor. I put the tool chest, the trunks, the goods box made into a cupboard, and the beds all around the wall to hold down the carpet as there was nothing to tack it to. The beds had curtains, and there was a curtained alcove between the beds that made a good dressing room. So we were real cozy and comfortable. Thousands of women set up house on the prairie. They were recent immigrants from Finland, Norway, Poland, and Ukraine. They were white and they were black. The 1866 Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment extended the benefits of the Homestead Act to African Americans, at least on paper. African Americans homesteaded in all of the Great Plains states. 3,500 succeeded in receiving a patent from the land office. Some lived in predominantly white communities, but about 70% settled in clusters or colonies with other black families. The largest of these were in Nicodemus, Kansas, Deerfield, Colorado, Sully County, South Dakota, Dewitty, Nebraska, Empire, Wyoming, and Blackdom, New Mexico.
Like white Americans, these settlers sought independence and opportunity in the West. They also sought refuge from racism in the South, where the goals of Reconstruction had been defeated, and so-called Redeemer Democrats used violence to restore the antebellum social order. Ellen Magruder and her husband John had been enslaved in Missouri, and after emancipation they became successful entrepreneurs and landowners there. But in 1908, they left Missouri and settled in Sully County, South Dakota. They purchased 1,200 acres and eventually had 300 head of cattle, 3,000 sheep, and 30 horses on their homestead. Lizzie Spies homesteaded in the Colony of Empire. She moved there in 1908 and got her lot under the Desert Land Act, an 1877 amendment to the Homestead Act, that encouraged development of arid and semi-arid lands. For these lots, irrigating the land was part of the proving up process. With her family, Spies made an estimated $1,500 of improvements on her land, including a frame house, root cellar, sod hen house, barn, and cow shed. At one point, Maddie Moore Wilson, known as Minnie Moore, had the largest landowning of any woman in Chavez County. After several rejections and appeals, she held 640 acres in the colony of Blackdom. In her previous career, she owned the most successful brothel in Roswell, a few miles from Blackdom. About 12% of the homesteaders in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas, and Utah were single women. 30 to 40,000 women in all earned land titles and actually had a better prove-up rate than men. Of the almost 1,800 African Americans who lived in Montana in 1910, approximately 43% were women. They all had different reasons for homesteading. Some were seeking investments and planned to sell their improved land and move back home. That money might go towards starting a business, purchasing more land, or getting an education. With the $500 that Erica Hansen earned from selling her South Dakota homestead, she studied to receive a teaching certificate. Some were looking for husbands, others had left husbands, or lost them to death, divorce, or desertion. Though single, they were usually not alone, filing on adjoining homesteads with sisters, cousins, or friends. One settlement near Fort Benton, Montana, was nicknamed Ladyville because it had so many women homesteaders. Some women went west hoping for a healthier lifestyle. Wilhelmine White moved to Burnt Thigh, South Dakota from Chicago after years of a busy life had taken a toll on her health. She took up a homestead with two friends and had no desire to go back to Illinois. A few of the women who received land patents were married women who were considered heads of household. Teresia L., for example, was able to file as head of household in North Dakota in 1901 because her husband was disabled. The couple had four children. But women filers were mostly single women and widows. To earn money for improvements on their homesteads, women worked other jobs. They worked as nurses, midwives, cooks, waitresses, and office clerks. Edith Ammons ran the local newspaper, the McClure Press, which printed notices when landowners proved up their claims. These notices were required by law and also gave people the opportunity to contest a settler's right to their land. Edith earned $10 a week. Ida Mary worked as a schoolteacher for $25 a month. After a while, they took out a loan to file on an abandoned claim, 
one of the many lots that were opened up on the Lower Brule Indian Reservation. The Sioux called it the Land of the Burnt Thigh. The Enterprising Sisters decided to start their own newspaper and a post office on the new plot. Three times a week, they hauled mail from Burnt Thigh to McClure. Eventually, they opened a store, which also became a trading post, where the Sioux bought and sold horses and other items. Elizabeth Corey from Marne, Iowa, taught school, too. Corey did domestic work over the summer. In the letters she wrote to her family, she signed off as Bachelor Bess, or BB. Agnes Burdick and her family ran the Villa Cafe in Carter, Montana. Even when they weren't heads of household, women were vital to the success of the homestead. According to Grace Fairchild, her husband Shiloh was, quote, never quite fitted into the life of a homesteader, end quote. So she earned an income by selling vegetables from her garden and renting out beds in her home. Bertie Brown, who was one of the few young African-American women who homesteaded in Montana, sold moonshine. According to locals, it was some of the best in the county. She had moved to Lewiston, Montana from Missouri in 1898. On her 1907 ap homestead application, she reported being, quote, a deserted woman, have not seen my husband for 10 years, and have supported myself and am head of a family, end quote. When she proved up five years later, her fenced homestead had a stable, chicken house, garden, and 25 acres of wheat, oats, and barley. Her log house had two main rooms, a kitchen, and a wraparound porch. The estimated value of her property was $1,000. Brown died in an explosion in 1933, seven months before the end of Prohibition. She was in her kitchen, tending to her whiskey still, while also dry-cleaning some clothes with gasoline, and the gasoline exploded. It goes without saying that homesteading was hard work. Over 50% of the homesteaders were unsuccessful in proving up. A harsh, drought-prone, and unpredictable climate, difficulty accessing water, and the remoteness of the lots led many applicants to abandon their homesteads before the end of the five years. Describing the winter of 1911 in the Deerfield, Colorado colony, Oliver T. Jackson writes, quote, That winter, only two of us had wooden houses, and the suffering was intense. We had scarcely any wood to burn. Buffalo chips and sagebrush was our chief fuel, end quote. Others lived in tents or dugouts, and half of their six horses perished. Despite a promising start, Lizzie Spies struggled to grow corn, potatoes, and millet. Her crops failed, and her land was foreclosed on in 1921. When John Magruder passed away, Ellen was unable to pay back their mortgage and lost the land. But Ellen did not give up on homesteading and filed a claim for 160 acres of her own. She and her son William worked on the land, and she received a patent in 1920. Juliana Halso filed a claim in 1901 at the age of 23. For some reason, her final request for a patent was contested by a third party who alleged she hadn't met the requirements. According to the records, she lived on the homestead during the summers and elsewhere throughout the year. She was the sole support of her ailing mother and three younger siblings. Juliana's physical labor included cutting sod and building the shanty, breaking 25 acres for civilization, and cutting hay.
Juliana's application was ultimately accepted, and she received her land patent in 1907. Along with the physical challenges, there were very real emotional struggles. Settlers were lonely and homesick, far from family and friends, and from their nearest neighbor, with whom they didn't always share a common language. It could be even worse in the winter, when snow kept the settlers inside and the news from far away out. Harriet Carr found her new Great Plains home beautiful, but she also missed Massachusetts, where she'd grown up. Dear Father and Mother, As Benjamin is writing to you tonight, I thought that perhaps a few lines from me might also be acceptable. And a few they will have to be, for the evenings are of no length now, and it is about bedtime. I wrote a long time since, but the letter lies yet in my portfolio from neglect to send it. This is a very beautiful evening. Our vast prairie looks soft and green, rolling far, far away in the distance, and the bright waters of our noble river sparkle in the red twilight tints, while the dark green forests that line its banks lie like some beauteous picture against the clear sky. I think the trees and grass have such a deep, bright tint of green here, much more so than in the east. It may be owing to the frequent showers we have had in part, but I think the principal cause is in some property of the soil. This brightness of color helps very much to increase the wonderful beauty of this unrivaled land. It certainly is the most beautiful country my eyes ever beheld, but still no spot on this earth seems so sweet and homelike as your hills, with their white villages clustered in their sheltered nooks. I love old Massachusetts, and if ever we are able to do so, I mean that there shall be my home. The prairie is vast, magnificent, and grand, but we miss the dear old trees, the gardens, the flowers and birds, those pleasing and homelike scenes which make the heart soft and happy. Oh, how I long for such a home, for a little cot with the grand elms waving over it and the birds singing their joyous anthems amid the branches. I never could be contented to call this land my home, beautiful though it may be. I wake oft times on a Sabbath morn as the sun shines brightly through my window and listen to the clamor, drunkenness, and awful profanity which we hear in these streets. And then I think of the sweet, quiet home of my youth, the cool, pleasant parlor, the fresh morning air scented with the fragrance of the blooming fruit trees or the garden flowers, stealing in at the open windows, the dear brother and sisters strolling in the garden or reading in the shade, and the white-haired, kind father with the Bible on his knee, and my heart grows sick with longings and my eyes dim with tears. After mentioning the recent 4th of July celebration and letters they have received, she ends, We get no letters more welcome than yours, dear father and mother, so deny them not to us. Truly your daughter, Harriet. Though the homesteaders left behind family and the familiar, they formed new communities. In fact, the challenges of homesteading were so great, people needed each other to succeed. That first evening in their shack, the Ammon sisters resolved to return to Pierre the next day. Their neighbors were a big part of helping them decide to stay. Mr. Dunn brought them water, 
Mrs. Dunn baked them a cornbread. And another homesteader, Widow Fergus, as she called herself, was, quote, round, bustling, and kind, end quote. Edith writes that when a blizzard was coming, the Randall family sent their sleighs around to, quote, round up the women who lived alone and bring them into shelter, end quote. Mr. Randall also sent his sons to get the doctor when the young Mrs. Layton went into labor late at night. And when they hosted parties, everyone in McClure was invited. The older ones square danced and the younger ones did the waltz and the polka. Residents of the Black Homestead colonies pooled their resources to build churches and schools. They organized baseball teams, reading circles, choral groups, newspapers, investment clubs, and sewing bees. They held dances and other celebrations. And the single women didn't always stay single. If you've been following Eleanor, you know that she married Clyde Stewart shortly after moving to Wyoming. Marion Schaus writes of her neighbor, Paul Petter, quote, We finally decided he needed a cook and I needed a farmer, end quote. African-American homesteader Annie Morgan and white Civil War vet Joseph Chase were not married, but she left her homestead to him in her will. Case had, had reportedly been suffering from typhoid fever on the banks of Rock Creek in Montana when Morgan found him and nursed him back to health. Case repaid her by building a fence for her homestead, and he stayed for 20 years. Incidentally, the Morgan Case homestead is on the National Register of Historic Places, and you can actually rent it out from the National Recreation Reservation Service. Many of the people who got in on the homestead action weren't actually homesteaders. In fact, 80% of the 270 million patented acres went to railroads, ranchers, and speculators. Sometimes, when a homesteader announced her claim, an unscrupulous locating agent contested the claim, even if they didn't have any grounds to do so. The settler then either had to go to trial or give up the land. There were claim jumpers who illegally sold relinquished claims, then disappeared before they could be caught. One day, the Ammon store was visited by, quote, a ruddy-faced man dressed in baggy checkered suit with a heavy gold watch chain across the front of his vest and a big flashy ring, end quote. He asked Ida Mary about the owner of one lot in particular. The visitor knew that the claimant had one day left before the land was relinquished back to the land office. At sundown, Rosie Kerrigan was nowhere in sight, and the sisters jumped into action. Edith Ammons writes that Ida Mary ran out to hitch the team to the wagon while I hurriedly dragged a few things out of the house and loaded them, things such as an immigrant must carry with him bedding, boxes, a traveling bag or two. We threw them in the wagon, circled off a mile or two. A few rods from the claim jumpers, we drove a stake, hung a lantern on it, and began to unhitch, shivering with excitement and apprehension. The noise of our arrival roused the two men, who stirred, and then with an exclamation got to their feet. We saw the flare of a match. One of them had drawn out his watch and was looking at it. Under the smoked lantern light, we looked, we looked at ours. It was ten minutes to twelve. We heard the murmur to each other, but continued unhitching the horses, dragging the hastily assembled articles out of the wagon. Then my heart began to pound. One of the men walked over to us. He was short, burly, heavy-jawed. Here, you can't stay here. Where do you think you are? He demanded. We made no answer, 
but the bed I contrived to make under his watching eyes was a hopeless tangle. We're on this land, he blustered. He was trying to run a bluff to find out whether we were on the right quarter section or whether, like him, we were land grabbers. I guess I'll have to have your identification, he said again. What's your name? Rosie Kerrigan, I answered, from Ohio. What are you doing on my land anyway? You have no right here. He hesitated, weighing the situation and the possibilities. Get off, I blazed at him. He got. The two men rolled up their bedding and moved on, and Ida Mary and I sat limply on the ground, watching them go. In case they should come back, we decided to hold the land for the night, gathered up the bedding, and slept in the wagon, when we slept. At daybreak, we were wakened by the rumble of a heavy-loaded wagon coming slowly over the prairie behind a limping team. A tall, slim girl and a slight boy sat high on the front seat. They drove up beside our wagon. Fastened on the back of their load was a chicken coop, and as they stopped, a rooster stuck its head out and crowed. The girl was Rosie Kerrigan, the boy was her brother, and the rooster was the first of his kind to settle on the reservation. They had been delayed by footsore horses, but no land grabbers, no one except ourselves, ever knew that Rosie Kerrigan did not establish residence at ten minutes before midnight. While the Ammon sisters were helping to save land for Rosie Kerrigan, Edith was very aware that they had taken land from someone else. She acknowledges in her memoir, quote, The Sioux had cherished this tall grass country as a hunting ground, and we had invaded it, end quote. In my next episode, I'll talk more about the settlers' contact and conflict with the Native Americans. If you'd like to read more about this topic, I recommend the book, Women of the Frontier, 16 Tales of Trailblazing Homesteaders, Entrepreneurs, and Rabble-Rousers by Brandon Marie Miller. There are a few more resources listed in the show notes, including the Edith Ammons Memoir and Lewis and Clark's Journals. The music for American Epistles is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support on the main menu to visit the Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.